Hello, Malcolm here, and thanks for watching this video, listening to this podcast. I'm recording this introduction to the sermon today because unfortunately the recording of the sermon finished before the end of the lesson. So I will be adding in what we missed later on when we get to that point. Aspiring to act. What does it mean for us to aspire to the right things that we believe will build God a great church? It's not about us having a great church or building it, it's about God doing it, but we want to do our part to make sure that the church can be as great as it can be for God. So that's, that's our aim. Now, years ago, uh, in fact, many years ago, in fact, to be precise, 1987, uh, which is before some of you here were born. Uh, I'm a bit worried it might even be before some of your parents were born, but I don't know. Uh, but... Uh, quite a long time ago, I was at a conference, and I never forget this occasion. I don't quite know why, except for some reason, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit lodged it in my memory. I heard a man called Mike do a, a, a lesson, <clears throat> and the title of his lesson was, The Gospels Produce Acts. A play on words. In other words, the Gospels produce acts, as in it, because of what Jesus did, how he lived, and how he uh, affected the people around him, inevitably we have the book of Acts. We have the story, the story of the early church, and the description of what it means to be a Christ follower fleshed out, lived out, without the physical presence of Jesus around. But also the play on words is simply this, that if we have the Gospels, then we act. So the Gospels produce acts. And in that vein, in that theme, I've called today's sermon uh, this title of aspiring to act because now that we know about Jesus then we act and prayerfully we'll be the kind of church we see in the book of Acts that's the idea and we have of course as those of us have been around a while know the last two years we've spent uh, our Sundays uh, almost every Sunday preaching through and teaching through the gospel of Luke and we finished that at the end of last year and so it seems appropriate to go from a gospel to the book of Acts, which is what we're going to look at today. And we're going to teach and preach through the book of Acts this year. And what's even more appropriate, for those of us who know, what is the connection between the gospel of Luke and Acts, by the way? Anybody know? Same author. So Luke, uh, the, uh, the author of the gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. And so there's a nice... Uh, symmetry or connection or however you want to put it between what we've been doing for the last two years and now what we're doing uh, this year and I want to dip into the book of Acts today as we go along to talk about uh, how we're going to be uh, all we can be for God so first of all let's talk about these five things this is what we've been uh, focusing on the last five weeks is our church aspirations to be God focused to be relationship based to be those kinds of people that will enable our children to become Christians whenever they may choose to do so. To be always free, which Asagi spoke of, but spiritual. We have, we have freedom in Christ, but we need to use that freedom in a godly way. And then toiling to build the church well. Toiling, as uh, Charlotte Bromman talked about last week, but also uh, but not only toiling, but toiling in building and building in a, in a, in a way that, ple- that uh, honors God that we toil in the church well. So those are our, our themes. So today uh, I'm going to dip into these and into the book of Acts together. So 
You've got a handout with the uh, scripture references on, and so you won't need to write those down, but you can make any other notes you wish on the handout. First of all, let's talk about being God-focused. Here's the thing about what we look at. We can be looking at the right things, but not truly seeing them. Have you ever had an experience like that? You look at something, but you're not really seeing it. You're sort of staring into nothingness. Your, your, your gaze is focused in a particular direction, but you're not really seeing it. I, I notice this with Penny sometimes because uh, Penny, as some of you know, is quite is a keen naturalist and really likes nature. And she's particularly got into bird watching recently. She was always interested, but has got more into it. And she's now got a really, really good pair of binoculars. We bought them as a birthday present. They're like super, super binoculars. And she's been given a proper bird watching telescope by her father with a proper tripod thing for this huge telescope thing. I mean, it's, it's really impressive. And through the, you know, I could be looking at a tree and I know there's a bird in the tree, but I can't really see it. Whereas Penny with her binoculars, she is focused on that thing with those binoculars or that telescope and she can really see it. Isn't that like sometimes in church where we can be really, know, we know we're about God, we know that, but are we really focused on God? Are we really seeing God? I had an interesting experience last year. I went to Mexico for a conference and just before the conference, I ran out of my contact lenses and so I ordered some new ones and they came the day before and I thought, well, I won't wear them because I'm going to be on the plane. I don't like wearing contact lenses on the plane. I'll wear my, my spectacles. So I packed away my contact lenses into my case, put my spectacles on, wore those for the duration of the flight, got to the hotel, slept. The next morning I got up, I took out my contact lenses in those, that's those particular boxes right on the screen there. And... Um, and I, I put them in, and I, my, obviously my eyesight without them in wasn't too good. I put them in, I looked at myself in the mirror, and this is what I saw. Oh. <laughs> Which you can't see. But this, you can just about see an outline, right? A fuzzy outline. That's all I could see. And then I, I took the contact lenses out, put them back in that little case, and I took out, took out the boxes, and I looked at the ends of them, which tells me... Um, the particular prescription. Now what that should say is not plus 2.5, it should say minus 2.5. Oh. And that one should say minus 2.25. <laughs> I had ordered the wrong prescription contact lenses and everything was out of focus. And so for a whole week I had to wear my glasses and I couldn't wear any contact lenses. And it's, you can be looking at the right things but they can be out of focus. We're not really seeing what's really there, and it's like that as a Christian sometimes. We can be going through the motions, knowing we're here for God, knowing it's all about God, praying but not really connecting, reading our Bible but not really getting fed, being at church but not really being engaged. It can be like that. And it's important that we are truly God-focused. Let's hook it here in Acts chapter 1. Let me touch on a couple of thoughts about what this means. So we're going to be in the book of Acts, as you may imagine, uh, for the rest of our time here today. Acts chapter 1 what do we see? We see that Jesus, first of all, before he ascends, he is with his disciples, with his followers, and he instructs them. And then he goes to, uh, out of their sight in, uh, in verse 9. And in verse 12, they go back to Jerusalem. And when they arrive, they go upstairs in verse 13 with Peter and James and John, all the other people there. And what does it say is their initial act? What is their automatic response to losing the physical presence of Jesus? In verse 14, 
This is they all joined together constantly in prayer. They didn't have one prayer time and that was it. They joined together constantly in prayer. They didn't just pray on their own. They joined together constantly in prayer. They didn't just join, uh, get together to have a chat about the weather and about the Arsenal result on Thursday night or about what we're having for dinner on thir- uh, next week. They joined together constantly in prayer along with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And that gave them the wisdom to know what to do about replacing an apostle. That comes later in the chapter, which I won't deal with right now, but they had a real issue to deal with. But by joining together constantly in prayer, it gave them the strength to cope with the fact that the physical presence of Jesus was no longer there with them. And it gave them the wisdom to know what to do with their first big decision. Who replaces Judas? And that's not exactly a small decision. And we as a church will face big decisions. We don't know what, even what they are yet, but we will face big decisions. <laughs> if we're the kind of church that is constantly engaged together in prayer, regularly being God-focused, deliberately God-focused, as in constantly coming together to help each other to be God-focused, then God will give us, I believe, the wisdom to know what to do when the big decisions come up. He'll give us the guidance, but he won't give us the guidance if we're not God-focused. Because we won't be able to hear his voice, for one thing. We won't recognize his voice. We won't have the wisdom we need. So they, they do that. And then in Acts chapter 4, in slightly different circumstances, let's just touch on this as well. A little bit later, they go through a tough time of significant persecution and opposition. And in Acts chapter 4, uh, we have Peter and John hauled up before the rulers and told that they are not supposed to be doing what they're doing, preaching the gospel. And uh, they told them they weren't allowed to talk anymore about Jesus. Um, And they called them in again in verse 18 and said they mustn't speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John are very bold. We we have to keep on talking about what we've been seeing and what we know. They let them go. They couldn't decide how to punish them in verse 21. So what did the church do? church they run and hide they get all scared and stop or consider whether we're really being sensitive enough to the people around us as to whether we really should be preaching the gospel I mean did they get inward focused did they get all worried and anxious did they stop meeting together well no they didn't what was their response when Peter and John go back and uh, tell them what's been going on verse 24 when they heard this they raised their voices together in prayer to God. What a great response. They raised their voices together in prayer to God. God focused. A problem comes up, God focused. A challenge comes up, God focused. Going through something we've not been through before, God focused. The church united in prayer focused on God. And I know it's not all about prayer, and I'm saying that, I'm just using a couple of examples here from from the book of Acts to point out ways in which the early church were God-focused. And I think that's for us too. It's for us to help each other collectively to be God-focused. It doesn't happen. We have our individual times with God, but it doesn't happen only if we do that, but also if we together are helping each other, helping each other to be God-focused. And then God gives them, as you may know in that passage, the result of their prayer. God gives them the boldness they need. After they prayed in verse 31, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. 
And this problem became something that fueled their faith and their zeal to go on and do what God had called them to do. So I want to encourage us to be God folks, to think carefully about how we help one another. Praying together, taking a moment, even on a Sunday, back in the fellowship, we get a plate of food and we go off in the corner and pray together about something. Or maybe we gather on it when we get together on our Wednesday nights when the men gather and the women gather. We make sure we spend time in prayer. That we take the opportunity to pray with each other. Especially those of us who might have time during the day to do that. Why not you know, go for a coffee but also go and pray. Or if, uh, or if we live near each other, then taking the time to have a, a quiet time together, a prayer time together. So that we don't get isolated and we don't lose that focus on God. So point number one, most important thing of all, in so many ways, uh, let's be a God-focused church. Secondly, let's talk about being relationship-based. Uh, relationship-based, connected by love. And Barry talked about this in the welcome when he read John 13, about love one another. This is how all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Being relationship-based. Have a look at Acts chapter 2. Let's have a look at these early Christians. Now most of us will know the story, and Peter preaches what's effectively the first Christian sermon. And at the end of that, um, because he's been preaching about the cross and the resurrection, uh, the people ask him, what should we do? What, what to be, what's to be done about this situation if Jesus died for us? In verse 36, and they, because they were cut to the heart. In verse 38, Peter tells them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you. And that's something we all need to do if we haven't already done it. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, so as you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that's how we get right with God. And the promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, and uh, they're all baptized, at least, well, 3,000 of them at least, are baptized that day. And then in verse 42, the natural reaction they have to this new news and this new life is what? that they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Communal activities done together. Everyone filled with awe, many wonders and signs done. The believers, verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property, possessions, giving to anyone who had need. Every day they met together, broke bread in their homes, ate together, glad and sincere hearts, praising God enjoyed the favor of all the people. God added to their number daily those who were being saved. There's something very natural about gathering together when we have our hearts changed by Jesus to really love people the way that God loves us. That love brings us together, draws us together. I'm not suggesting that Acts 2 is the exact blueprint for how we should live. There are differences in culture and time and circumstances. But the heart of it, the heart of it, that desire to be together, uh, where was I on, um, I think it was Wednesday night, I was with the men, we were with the men and uh, Charles was just talking about how much he loves hanging out with Tunde and Osagi and various people and, and the more Charles talked about how much he loves hanging out with those guys, the more kind of convicted I got because I thought, well I like hanging out with them, <laughs> but do I love hanging out with them? Charles said, yeah, I, I, I spent all day with you, all day, talk all night, I love it, I love it, I love it so much, I just love all night, all day, and I, yeah, all, well, for an hour or two, I can handle, <laughs> I don't know about all day, I'm certainly not sure about all night, I, there's, you know, I, there's a part of, and we're all different personalities, and that's fine, and we don't have to be all exactly the same, but there is a, a way in which we're transformed, 
when we receive the Holy Spirit, such that we do devote ourselves to one another. We see that in Acts 2. We see that in Acts 4. Uh, if we flip over there as well. Uh, they're together all the time. It's amazing. All the believers, verse 32, were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own. They shared everything they had. Great power. There's great testimonies. And they, they just they love being together. It's very clear. And I think if we don't feel that way, that's kind of okay, but we need to pray about it. And find, find out what it is that's the barrier between uh, us being the kind of uh, people that we see in the Book of Acts. And uh, I, I spent some time with Tunde this week, and I must say, I did love it. And uh, we had a coffee on uh, Friday, and it was great. Obviously, she wasn't feeling very well, but just going out for a coffee, to Costa Coffee in Rickmansworth, for an hour, which turned into an hour and a half, actually. And I didn't notice the time flew by. I actually had about 45 minutes, but it turned into an hour and a half. I didn't mind. I thought, that's good. And, uh, but after an hour and a half, I had had enough. But, uh, it's, but I'm really glad I did that. I was reluctant, actually, because I wasn't feeling very well. But actually, it helped me feel better. Mm. Something about that connection with people makes all the difference. So point number two, relationship-based. Let's devote ourselves to one another. Uh, in Christ. Thirdly, uh, enabling our children to become Christians. Sorry about the, uh, the lighting challenge we have here today. Uh, nice sunshine. But that does say enabling our children to become Christians. Now that very fuzzy picture is a picture of, of uh, my niece's back baby. So that's a scan. So my niece, Emma, sent me this on WhatsApp. And I must tell you, because uh, 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 what she said. I don't think I've told all of you. I think I've only told one or two of you. But I'll read it for you because I think it's quite funny. Certainly I do. I thought it was funny. Uh, so my niece, Emma, my sister's daughter, sent me this picture of the scan. Uh, she and her husband got married about a year and a half ago, I think. And she sent me this scan and she meant to say in her little WhatsApp note, she said, she meant to say, hey, Uncle Malcolm, Rick, that's her husband, Rick and I have some news. Baby Bradford, that's the surname, Baby Bradford is due in July with a big smiley face and a couple of kisses. Fantastic, great news, nice little picture. That's, uh, uh, that's my, gonna be my, uh, I'm gonna be great Uncle Malcolm, actually, which is a bit of a shock to the system. Um, but actually she didn't say, hey Uncle Malcolm, da da da. She said, hey Uncle Malformed. <laughs> hey, Uncle Malformed. Rick and I have some news. I, I, then and she quickly typed underneath, oh, sorry, autocorrection, uh, uh, Uncle Malcolm. <clears throat> or should I say, great Uncle Malcolm now. Uh, you know, when, when a baby is due, and we're very excited for my, my niece, and uh, when, when a child is born, it's so exciting. And I think it's true for our church family. You know, when people, when people, when a baby like Zach is born, we all rejoice. And that's a wonderful thing. And we all, I think we do cherish all of the children we have in this church. Uh, that, uh, when they come regularly, we see them occasionally, but we love all the kids. And I think we really do. And I think we're really good at valuing children in this church and, and loving them. And, you know, people like Joe probably set the ultimate example to which we all aspire. So uh, that's great. But I think we genuinely do care about all of our children. I think the thing that we need to understand as a church is that it's not just about the parents, about helping each other's children to become Christians if they wish to. 
It's about us all taking some responsibility, at least to set a good example and really love the kids ourselves. So let's not just delegate the loving of the children to Joe or one or two people who really enjoy all that stuff. But let's challenge each other and challenge ourselves to really love all the kids because it's about the communal, uh, the family here. Um, I like the example of Philip in Acts 6. You know, um, in, well, actually, go to Acts uh, 21 first. Um, we don't have a lot about parenting in the book of Acts, I must say, so I'm not going to try and do a parenting lesson out of the book of Acts. But I would like to point something out. In Acts chapter uh, 21 and verse 8, we see this. So uh, uh, they're traveling, uh, Paul is traveling, and he continues from Tyre, lands of Ptolemais, uh, greets the brothers and sisters, stayed there for a day, and in verse 8, Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. That's quite something, isn't it? Four unmarried I don't know why they're mentioned as being unmarried. I don't know why, what the significance of that is. But anyway, four daughters who prophesied. It doesn't say whether all of his children prophesied, whether the four was the total number, whether he had extras who didn't, we don't know. But he did have four children who prophesied. I think that means they must have had a real faith. I think it means that they were grown up enough to be, to be Christians, if they're going to be used by God to prophesy. We don't know the details of all that. I'm not going to try and go into that now. But I think, isn't that interesting? There is Philip with four daughters, all of which prophesied. What do we know about Philip? Go back to Acts 6. Why might this be the case? I'm not suggesting a formula here, there is none, but I just want to draw maybe an inference at least. In Acts 6, you know the story where uh, some of the members of the church are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, and so the apostles are looking for a solution. And what does it say about um, the kind of people they're looking for? So this solution in verse 3 the apostles speak to the church and they say, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them and we'll do other things. And then the group chose Stephen, verse 5, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, also Philip. And it says in that passage that we looked at in Acts chapter 21 that Philip was one of the seven. He was one of these guys. That was that, that, was that Philip. What was one of the qualifications? That he be full of the spirit and wisdom. There's something there about his spirit and about the work of the spirit in him that must have helped his daughters, I think. He was wholehearted in some way. And he was used to serve at tables, but he was used also as an evangelist, interestingly. And in chapter 8, you know the story of the, uh, the Ethiopian. And Philip is told by the Spirit to go and stand near the chariot and speak to, them, to the man in the chariot about uh, Isaiah and the prophecies about the Messiah and teach him about Jesus. And then you know the Ethiopian, what does he do? He sees some water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And they go down into the water. And what does Philip do? Philip baptizes him. Here is a man full of the Spirit and wisdom, chosen to serve, bold with sharing his faith, attentive to the Spirit, listens to the Spirit telling him to go and stand next to the chariot, bold in sharing his faith, effective in it, and his four daughters all prophesy. Maybe there's a connection. 
I like what I see in Philip because what I see in him is a wholeheartedness. And I don't know all, the, and again, there's no formula, but I don't know all of what it takes to enable our children to become Christians, but I'm certain that wholeheartedness on the part of all of us in this church is part of it. Listening to the Spirit, being willing to be used by God, like Philip, will not guarantee an outcome, but it surely is the right approach to take, the right attitude to have, to give our children the best chance possible to become Christians. So that's enabling our children to become the Christians. Let's help each other's children. Fourthly, always free, yet spiritual. Always free, yet spiritual. I would like to characterize this by the idea of being willing. If you're free but spiritual, you're willing to serve. I'm not sure that little dog there is very willing. I don't know whether that's you and you're asked to serve, but you're like, uh, please could you help? Okay, I have to. I, I think being always free and spiritual means we always have a choice about how we serve God, but we take a spiritual attitude towards service, whether it's in this uh, meeting here or whether it's serving God where we work, where we live, and the things we do uh, out in the, in the world when we're not here. There's a, a sense of willingness and eagerness that I think comes up. Let's look in Acts chapter 8 again. In fact, I think we're already there. In Acts chapter 8, the church has had some tough times of persecution, but it's going to reach a new level. And here at the beginning of chapter 8, they've just seen Stephen stoned to death. That's pretty dramatic. The first of the martyrs. And Saul is there. And on that day, in verse, eight of chap uh, verse 1 of chapter 8, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And the response of the church, the response of the scattered, the response of those who've been torn away from their families and their homes and have no idea whether the next knock at the door might be Saul, taking them away to prison and possible death. Their response in verse four, those who had been scattered preached the word, the very word that got them in trouble, the very word that got Stephen killed. They preached that word wherever they went, no matter the risk, no matter what could happen. What a great spirit. I think that's the spirit of being always free, yet spiritual. There's no command here. There's no church structure in these places they're going. There is no church to attend where they're going because up to this point, the only groupings of Christians have been in Jerusalem, as far as we know. So they're being, they, don't, they don't have anybody following up on them. They don't have anybody instructing them. They don't have any, uh, where are we meeting for church today? Uh, they have no idea. They, they, they don't have a hall that is hired. They, they have nothing. They don't have anything. But they preached the word wherever they went. They chose it. I think that's the always free yet spiritual. It's my choice. What I do with my time, my energy, my money. But can I use it for the kingdom? Can I use it to build up the kingdom? Can I use it to express the kingdom in this world today? Can I use it, my time, my energy, and my money, can I use it in a way that glorifies God? I think that's the question we ask ourselves when we're desiring to enjoy our spiritual freedom, but yet use it in a way that is honouring of Jesus and what he's done for us. So, um, it's, uh, one, one uh, other thought of this. Um, Penny, 
for my Christmas present, bought me tickets to an exhibition at the British uh, Museum. And it's an exhibition of um, how spirituality has been expressed in different cultures and different religions, in Buddhism, in Judaism, in, uh, in all kinds of religions, and the objects involved. And I came across this object, and I got this picture of it. This is a, uh, a board, about maybe this big, and it's from Japan, and it dates from the 1500s. So it's been around a long time. And uh, for those of you that can't read Japanese, uh, I don't know whether Barry and Kate can still read some, or know some, um, but anyway, the screen's not very good. But basically what that board is, it's put up, and once a year, everybody, in the village or the town, there would be an official, and he would call everybody to, uh, to individually, I think, to or something, and, and he would say, it is your duty as a member of our community to let me know if you know of anybody claiming to be a Christian. And you had to tell if you knew anybody that was claiming to be a Christian. If you didn't, you were in serious trouble. And then the other thing you had to do, because the persecution of Christians was very intense in the 1500s and they were slaughtered in Japan at that time. The other thing you had to do was uh, you were given a, a clay tablet about this size and on that clay tablet was a picture of the Christian cross and Jesus on the cross, some kind of like a figurine. Right? It was a clay tablet about this thick with a slightly embossed um, risen piece of uh, the cross of Jesus and you had to put it on the ground and stamp on it and break it and say, I am not a Christian or you wouldn't be allowed to stay in the village. And in fact, you'd be killed. So that's what it co cost to be a Christian in, 1500s, in the 1500s in Japan. I, you know, we, honestly, I live such a comfortable life, really. Really, and don't we all, really? I mean, we talk about persecution and opposition for our faith, but it's nothing. How fortunate we are to live in, at least where I live and the times in which I live, to have such freedom. But let's make sure that I and all of us use our freedom well, understanding that because we have freedom, we have choices. And let's make sure our choices are those that are truly spiritual. We've prayed about our choices. We've talked about them with our friends. We've considered all the options about how to use our time, how to use our money, how to use our possessions, how to use our homes, the decisions about where we go to work and, and how many hours we work and, and how we travel and visit people and other places. Make sure that we're always free, yes, but spiritual in our choices. So that's our fourth point. Our fifth and final point is to talk about toiling to build the church well. Charlotte Bronwyn spoke so well about this last week, and if you haven't watched their lesson, I'd encourage you to do so, either on the video or the uh, podcast audio. Toiling to build the church well. How do we, collectively and individually, toil to build the church well? Let's look at two examples in the book of Acts that may give us some insight into this. Acts chapter 4, first of all, and we'll pick it up in verse 34. So Acts 4, 34, halfway through the verse, for from time to time, it says, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as they had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So we see here some people who are willing to use whatever they've been given, their homes, what is it, land, houses, field, all of these things were at God's disposal. 
So God could use them. A part of toiling to build the church well is using what we're given to God's glory to meet needs. In this context, needs of poorer members of the church. But of course, we're called to meet the needs of all that we can. The poor, the needy in this world, as well as the needs within the church. And those could be emotional needs, those could be physical needs, those could be spiritual needs, all kinds of needs. We do what we can, where we can, with what we have. God is not calling us to do what we can't do with what we don't have. But he's calling us to live by faith in using the resources we have for other people. They must have taken, I think, significant faith to sell a house, sell some land, sell a field and say, I'm going to give this away. And of course, in that context of that culture where land was was so important and part of the promise of God and inheritance rights were so more important then than they are now, it, it required considerable faith and courage to sell these things and then give them money, give the proceeds to the, to the apostles who weren't physical family. They did it by faith because they wanted to build the church well. They wanted the needy in the church to be less needy because the less needy you are, the more then you're equipped to help other people. And then the church can be built well, the kingdom can expand, more people can come to know about the blessings of God's kingdom. So my thought for us with this point in this verse is, are we consciously using our resources well? And that can be time, it can be money, it can be possessions, skills, gifts, we must use them to build God's church well. And God's church won't be built well unless we use what we have already been given to build the church. So consider carefully what you've been given and whether you're using what you've been given to God's glory. That includes our material possessions. And I would just like to make a small point. I think that includes our contribution financially to the work of the church. Two weeks ago, I think it was, we had a presentation on the financial update of the church. And while there's much to be thankful for, our dream of being self-supporting is still a little way off. So by faith, we're calling on God to help us and on one another collectively to make the sacrifices that we can financially so that we can be self-supporting. And we pray that that will be this year. And why not? God can help us do it by faith. And I believe we can. But let's think carefully about that. But the second scripture I'd like to look at is in Acts 18, to look at another aspect of how we toil to build the church well. Look, look here with me in Acts 18, and we'll talk about Priscilla and Aquila. And they were people who self-supported to help support the work of the church and the Apostle Paul and other people. But that's another different, slightly different point. What I want to look at here is something else about Priscilla and Aquila. They come across Apollos in verse 24, a learned man, thorough knowledge of the scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord, speaking with great fervor, teaching about Jesus accurately, but there's a but, isn't there? Um, though he knew only the baptism of John. He didn't know the un and understand the significance of the baptism of Jesus and what Jesus taught, only the baptism of John. And he speaks boldly in the synagogue, verse 26, and then when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, interestingly, they invited him to their home, and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They weren't, they weren't over-impressed with his learning, his knowledge of the scriptures, his speaking fervor and enthusiasm, his teaching about Jesus, his boldness. They weren't overawed by those things. Instead, they realized this is a wonderful man, but he has something lacking in his theological, spiritual understanding. So what should we do? We won't just uh, if, ignore it, forget about it, or just pray about it, we'll say, Apollos, how about coming for dinner? Come round to the house, 
let's spend some time together. There's something we'd like to explain to you. And they sat down and they explained to him the way of Jesus more adequately, the way of God more adequately. And from what we understand is implied, at least with that passage, and what we understand about the baptism of Jesus and what Jesus taught, that they explained to him the significance of the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes through baptism, rather than just the baptism of repentance according to uh, John's baptism. Really important, significant difference. And so my calling from this, my thought from this, is that one of the ways we toil to build the church well is by helping each other and people we encounter to understand the way of God more adequately. This is a point about, if you like, pastoral ministry. It's about being involved with each other, uh, with the scriptures, uh, either directly teaching each other or encouraging and helping each other, perhaps also praying together as well as using the Bible together, spending time together, talking heart to heart, confessing our sins together, and helping other people who need some help to understand the way of God more adequately. And that's not just, if you like, the leaders and ministers. Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers. They were, in as far as we can tell, in a sense, ordinary people, like, like all the rest of us. And they had a, a passion. They had their own conviction about when they heard someone teach and think he didn't, and that's something he doesn't understand, let's talk to him. They had their own conviction. They weren't looking for somebody else to fill that knowledge gap. They themselves said, well, why not us? And if we're going to build God's church well, it's going to be you and I, personally, individually, having conviction about helping one another and the people that God brings into our lives so that all can know the way of God adequately. So that's another thought there for toiling to build the church well from Acts 4, using our resources, and Acts 8, uh, having people in our homes, uh, being eager to teach people, having a concern to help other people know the way of God more adequately. So that's just the last couple of scriptures I wanted to share today. Let's maybe wrap up by thanking all the people that spoke the last five weeks. Leon for speaking about uh, God being God-focused. Barry for talking about being relationship-based. And then Danny for talking about enabling our children to become Christians. And Becky shared a bit too. That was helpful. Uh, Asagi talking about being always free but spiritual. And then last week, Char last week, Charles and Bronwyn talking about toiling to build the church well. It makes, it makes such a difference to hear these different voices speaking about such important topics. As we come to the end of this, my uh, final con concluding thoughts are this. These are aspirations. In other words, we're always going to be growing and learning about these. We're not going to, in, in this world, we're not going to arrive at perfect God-focusedness or uh, the perfection in any of these <clears throat> aspirations. We're going to keep growing. The question is not getting somewhere specific. The question is growing from where we are to something more Christ-like in these areas. So as a church in the Watford Church of Christ, I urge myself and all of us to think personally about how can I grow in these areas, and in particular, my weaker areas. Uh, on the day of preaching the sermon, I handed out a handout, which I'm willing to uh, email to anybody who requests it. So drop me a line via the podcast or the video feed. Put a, uh, drop me a line or put a, put a note in the comments box saying you'd like the handout. I'll send it to you to help us to think about where we believe the church is strongest and weakest in each of these five aspirations. And, and then where we are strongest and weakest in each of these five aspirations. And then my thought would be to match up the strengths with the weakness. So if you feel like, for example, 
that the greatest weakness in our church is uh, being God-focused, and you feel like that's the weakness, that's the bottom of the list, and you feel like that's your greatest strength of the five, well, then you can help all of us to make sure that we grow in our God-focusedness to make that a, a, a more even strength with the other areas that we're aspiring to grow in. So please think about the strengths and weaknesses in our church as a whole, as far as you see it, and then in your own life. And then we can make sure to match up the strengths and the weaknesses and make progress in the relevant areas. That's what I had to share on Sunday. Thank you for watching this video. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for your involvement. If you're a member of the Watford Church of Christ, thank you so much for helping us to make progress in these five crucial aspirations. If you are not in Watford, not a member of our congregation, but you pray for us, you watch these videos, you listen to these podcasts, I want to thank you for your prayers. I'd solicit them all the more. Please pray for us regularly. If you'd like more information about the church, then drop me a line, leave a comment in the comment box. Uh, that's how we learn from one another and that's how we grow. And if you want to know any more, you can check our Twitter feed, our Facebook page, our website and our YouTube channel. And you're welcome to come and visit us anytime. Currently, we're meeting 10.30 in the morning at Lawrence Haynes School on Vicarage Road in Watford. On occasion, we have special events when we're not there. So do check before you come if you don't reg come regularly. We'd love to see you if you could make it. God bless. Take care.